morning to you. Three minutes after 8 o'clock. This is Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis here on Radio 3. Well, Ukraine weighs on financial markets this morning. The shift from risk assets like growth stocks to value steps up a gear. Siemens gains French support for Alstom. So it looks like a Siemens GE battle for the company. And China Construction Bank's earnings suggest what me worry? among China bulls. First, some teases to get us started. Major issues in uh, energy markets, important issues for uh, Europe. And, but I think it's very important that we remember that this crisis is going to be not just about what we do to Russia, but what we do for uh, Ukraine. Former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers there as the president dangles new sanctions on Russia. And a famous bond house says we're about to exit the new normal for a new new normal. Most central banks in most regions of the world generally either going the same direction or, or on hold. We're entering a new period where you're going to have central banks doing different things with monetary policy. We've seen that in emerging markets already quite a bit. Some countries hiking rates. That's Scott Mather from PIMCO. He heads up all global bonds for the firm, and he expects higher growth ahead for the United States. And not only that situation where currencies will be a lot more volatile because some central banks will be raising and some central banks will still be cutting. And we'll get to that in just a minute. In some of our featured segments this morning, we'll talk about whether the cross-border through train will encourage mainland companies to become more transparent. And we'll talk about local and regional markets with Michael Kurtz of Nomira. Also, Ukraine in the U.S. economy with Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, with Mark Michelson of APCO Worldwide. As we said, markets uh, not weathering the uh, current conditions very well, whether it's uh, the angst over Ukraine, whether it's the big shift from uh, growth stocks, uh, out of growth stocks into value, or just some general concerns about growth ahead. The Nikkei down 116, that's a drop of eight-tenths of a percent. Australia and Seoul slightly lower as well. The U.S. dollar flat against the yen, 102.09 is the figure. And the euro is trading 1.3836 U.S., while the pound is worth 13 Hong Kong dollars and two cents. First, Larry Summers on Russia, Ukraine. Major issues in uh, energy markets, important issues for uh, Europe. And, but I think it's very important that we remember that this crisis is going to be not just about what we do to Russia, but what we do for uh, Ukraine, supporting Ukraine in a process of uh, economic improvement in strong and vigorous ways is also an important part of maintaining its connections uh, with the world and an important part of standing up against uh, what has really been a dangerous and revanchist trend. So, of course, that's Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. And also to set up our discussion with Barry Wood, PIMCO says we're entering a new phase. We've kind of come from, you know, over this period of the last several years with 0% interest rate policy and QE. And uh, most central banks in most regions of the world generally either going the same direction or, or on hold. We're entering a new period where you're going to have central banks doing different things with monetary policy. We've seen that in emerging markets already quite a bit. Some countries hiking rates. Of course, we go into this next period, we're going to see the U.S. begin to uh, to hike rates sometime in the next year or two. And that is, of course, going to set in motion you know, more currency volatility. So more, more companies are going to be hearing more about it uh, in terms of how they manage that exposure. Uh, it, you know, it hasn't mattered as much in the past few years, but it's going to matter a lot in the, in the few years ahead. And he says we're exiting the new normal. 
Yes, I, I, I think that is the case. We've certainly done that on a cyclical basis. You know, our forecast for growth this year in the U.S. is, you know, upshifting up into the high twos. Uh, so that's a clear departure from where we've been in the last several years. And, and you know, under consideration is where we'll be in the next three to five years. And I think it's safe to say that it's, it's going to be, you know, substantially better than, than the last five years. So just to round things out for you, oil price is now 109.80 a barrel, and gold is trading at $1,300 an ounce right on the button. Let's say good morning now to Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. Barry, good morning. Good morning, Brian, and welcome back. Yes, it's nice to be back, uh, but it was great to be there, too. I know you know Eastern Europe well. Wow, I love the Czech Republic. I want to move there, but I can't. <laughs> I got a job. I got a job here, but isn't the Czech Republic just amazing? I mean, the, atti- the attitude of people is so good and they're so smart and they're so efficient. I think the U.S. has to look out when you look at um, not only what, what is happening in Asia, but when you look at uh, Eastern Europe, um, you know, people in Hungary, people in, I mean, they speak English better than some people in the United States. It's incredible. Anyway, that's a, that's, that's a discussion. Smart. They're very smart and they're kind of gunning for it, too. And But that's a discussion for another day. So much to talk about. Um, Russia, Ukraine is weighing on markets and it's it's weighing on people generally. I mean, I think there's just a big worry that Vladimir Putin is he doesn't seem to be um, upset at all uh, about uh, the sanctions. Uh, You've seen a lot of capital flight from Russia. You've seen, you know, something like 70 billion dollars exit the country. Equity market down 22 percent. The ruble falling, uh, people fleeing. But it it doesn't seem to be attaining whatever the West thinks it should be attaining. Well, I I agree with what you said. I think it's the end of an era. The the, the post-collapse of the Soviet Union period in which Russia was regarded as a kind of partner, really as seen through the group of eight, that's over. I mean, there's no longer really a group of eight. It's the group of seven once again. And Russia has, in a very considered way, I think, decided to go for a nationalistic, not putting together the old Soviet Union, but certainly in the case of Ukraine, saying, hold it, this country, we have to have a say about its future. And that coming back to the Larry Summers that you played, you know, it's what can we do for Ukraine? But the question becomes, can Ukraine hold together? Not just because they've lost Crimea, but whether they're going to be able to control the East, the Russian-speaking part of the country. It's a big question. Do you think Russia invades Ukraine? No. No, I don't. I think they want to destabilize the country. I think they want to uh, have uh, some kind of chaotic situation so that the May is it 24th referendum and election in Ukraine is seen as illegitimate. The Russians want to present the authorities in Kiev as illegitimate and as uh, pushist. And they want to uh, make sure that whatever government in Ukraine emerges is one that is friendly to Russia. And I'm not sure how that's all going to happen. So it's a very dangerous situation in which the future is very unpredictable. How much is this weighing on global markets? Surprisingly little. I mean, that is, I think, the message of the last month. It could heat up and that European markets would tank and that we would have fallout in North America and even in your part of the world. But so far, that really hasn't happened. I think maybe this coming week is going to be important in this regard because it appears that in the next 24, 48 hours, we're going to see 
new sanctions from the NATO countries, and that means really the big European powers, and I think they're together with the North Americans on this. And will that sting? Will that hurt the Russians? Yes. But will it change their attitudes? Nobody knows. It seems if we switch gears a little bit now to look at the U.S. economy, it seems that a couple of major themes are playing out. Um, the markets were just terrible uh, last week after the latest housing data. I think a lot of people are concerned that, uh, you know, that is weighing down the U.S. economy. And secondly, if you go back to February, once Twitter reported, we entered this new phase of people just aggressively selling growth stocks, uh, not only the big Internet stocks, the social media and other plays, uh, e-commerce, but also biotech and, and the like. And I heard you say earlier with Mike, and I thought, oh, I'm going to call him on that, that things were kind of boring in the equity markets. Au contraire. I mean, if you owned if you owned growth in the last couple of weeks, you've been absolutely murdered. Well, that's true. That's true. And in fact, you can look at now almost the four months of 2014 and say, wow, this has been a disaster. I mean, look at the statistics. The Dow is down 1.3%, the S&P up 1%, and the NASDAQ down 2.5%. There's been absolutely no movement forward in the stock market in the state. And almost on three, four consecutive weeks, we've had these rallies early in the week, and then Friday just sort of peters out and it becomes a, a key reversal. And the tech sector has been really clobbered, as you say. So there's, there, there's no happiness. So the overall averages don't really tell the story because a lot of people were in these high flyers and they've seen really dramatic downturns in their portfolio. So I've been asking every guest, um, you know, this shift, it looked like it, it finished last week momentarily when Apple reported strong earnings and Facebook reported strong earnings. We've got a teeny tiny little bounce. I'll apple a big bounce, but then on Friday, everything just got flushed again. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, it is the look at those three companies you mentioned and add uh, Amazon. Those reports were all really good, but in fact, that couldn't uh, reverse the decline in the tech sector. You know, I think this is a market that's either going to break on the upside or break on the downside. And I suppose that you've got some evidence that it's going to break on the downside, in part because we really haven't had a 10% correction in, you know, a, a almost three years. So this, this, is, this is worrisome. Amazon's earnings troubled some people because the amount of spending. And when you talk about uh, shifts in thinking, it seems like investors are now saying, Look, you know, if you're going to spend that much and completely disregard shareholders and completely disregard the notion of profits, then maybe finally I'm going to walk away. <laughs> well, it's true, Brian, and I think they did. I mean, Amazon uh, is, is way down over the last uh, uh, Thursday, Friday. I mean, it's just been a disaster for Amazon shareholders. And the stock has declined pretty steadily for the last three months. However... Jeff Bezos, in his whole approach since he started that company, was it 1999? That has been always go for growth, invest in the future. I read someplace that this is now the world's biggest retailer, even bigger than Walmart. So, I mean, the fact that he's investing in more of these fulfillment centers, that he's thinking of all kinds of new ways of delivering, that he's gone into all these new products, I think that uh, it's, it's, it's in one sense very short-sighted to dismiss that approach and say, well, he should be giving it back to shareholders. Most tech companies don't give anything back to shareholders. Okay, Barry, lots to talk about, but I've got a couple of other excellent guests coming up, too. So say goodbye for now. Uh, nice to talk to you again. We'll see you next Monday. 
That's Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. Well, in some major corporate news over the weekend, German engineering group Siemens reportedly offering Alstom half of its own train-making business plus cash in exchange for the French rival's uh, power turbines division as the French government tries to head off the sale to General Electric of the United States. RTHK's Robert Kemp has more. Francis Le Figaro newspaper said it had seen the contents of the letter, the existence of which was announced by Siemens earlier on Sunday, in which the German company offered a potential alternative to the deal US company General Electric was preparing to negotiate with Alstom. The Siemens deal, outlined by Le Figaro, has similarities to past plans to combine the businesses. The paper said the offer was informal, but detailed and included a proposal from Alstom, maker of the TGV high-speed trains, to take on Siemens high-speed trains and locomotives arm, but not its metropolitan trains division. Le Figaro gave no details of the cash part of the deal. Earlier on Sunday, Siemens said its letter was a signal of its willingness to discuss future strategic opportunities with Alstom. Only hours before GE boss Jeff Immelt was due in Paris to thrash out a deal to buy Alstom's global power arm. A spokeswoman for Economy Minister Arnaud Montebourg subsequently said Immelt's meeting had been postponed for a few days. The French government wants to find alternatives to the GE offer, which sources said puts a value of $13 billion on the turbines and power grid equipment business and could be announced in days. Robert Kemp reporting. The time is 16 minutes after 8 o'clock. Let's say good morning now to Michael Kurtz, Chief Equity Asia Strategist uh, at Nomura, or Chief Asia Equity Strategist at Nomura. So, yeah, hung over on Monday morning. So what? Uh, that's that's um, that's my good morning to you, Michael. How are you morning, doing? Brian. I'm great. Uh, thanks. Uh, uh, long weekend. Oh. So I want to ask you some of the same questions I put to Barry. The pullback in uh, high flying tech stocks and and other winners uh, is it the pause that refreshes or does it continue? Now I read through a little bit of your report. You said. Uh, it probably doesn't mean it's a canary in a coal mine because you would have seen high yield and other risk uh, areas come down. Uh, flesh that out for us a little bit. And how long does this uh, pause that refreshes continue? Sure. Um, yeah, if we go back to the NASDAQ meltdown in 2000, what's interesting is that uh, that uh, pullback was sort of corroborated, if you will, by a number of other risk-sensitive or growth-sensitive markets. You had a widening of lower-grade corporate credit spreads back in 2000, and interestingly, emerging markets severely underperformed developed markets at the same time the NASDAQ was pulling back. This time around, you're not getting either of those. The, the, you know, uh, High-yield corporate credits have been extraordinarily well-behaved. The yields have uh, stayed low. The spreads have stayed low. Emerging markets, as we've seen, are in fact substantially outperforming. And we think that if this pullback in the growth uh, you know, segments in the U.S. were telling us something uh, more worrisome about either the growth outlook or the market's appetite for risk, you simply wouldn't be seeing these very risk-sensitive markets outperforming or continuing to do well as they are. Uh, and there's one other issue that's worth keeping an eye on here, and that is the, the correlations between sectors in the U.S., have also remained very low, around 65, 68 percent 
versus crisis spike levels of about 90%. When correlations are low, that basically simply means that movements in one sector don't have that much of an impact or implication for other sectors. So, Mr. Market always seems to set up to hurt the most people. Um, Is it now the people who are short this whole complex that are maybe the next ones to get hurt? Well, I I do think that this is not going to be uh, a very long-legged decline, if you will, because the underlying data, uh, you know, for the growth recovery in the U.S. on the main are still holding up extraordinarily well. You've been right uh, to focus on the housing market as a soft spot uh, in your in your recent comments. But um, if we look at, for example, the new orders sub-indexes from the ISM that came out last month, look at uh, just last week, a very strong Uh, durable goods number that came out, consumer sentiment looking good. Most of the data that are coming out in the U.S. are suggesting that the U.S. underlying economic rebound is very much intact and picking up momentum as we come out of the cold winter months. Yeah, I wonder, though, because, you know, China's been down a long time. And I just had this argument with a guy yesterday over a beer. Um, he was saying, oh, it's about to rebound. It's about to rebound. And I said, hey, it just looks horrible. You know, China, Hong Kong, what a horrible place to be if you're in markets. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've been down a long time, seven years for the Shanghai Composite. And God knows how many years for Hong Kong. It's been a stinky market. Yeah, and I'm not going to you know throw any disagreement in your direction on that particular observation. The fact is that, uh, in my view, during March, uh, too many investors got themselves excited about the prospect for some sort of a substantial policy easing exercise in China, whether that be monetary loosening or another big fiscal package. Um, And what we've gotten instead is a creeping realization that, in fact, the leadership is probably only going to provide the barest sort of policy backstop, a kind of a downside insurance policy against a major rollover in growth, but nothing on the order of a major sort of engineering, uh, you know, of, of a substantial upturn in the business cycle. They're, they're, they're mindful of the fact that if they were to sort of fall back into that fetal position of throwing a lot of free credit at the economy, that they're going to be doing more damage over the longer term than they will be helping in the short term. So you do see a lot of reform happening. You, you see the anti-corruption drive. Uh, uh, you see, you know, the two-way bet on the renminbi. You see state-owned enterprises uh, being asked to reform. Uh, if you look at at uh, the earnings out over the weekend from uh, China Construction Bank, pretty strong. Um, so you can kind of make the argument for both ways. The slower growth and the reform is all weighing on on risk assets. Uh, and you've got this big debt overhang. Uh, so I don't know which way do you go and you know highlight a couple areas that you think are working. Yeah, that, and, and that is the great difficulty in terms of China investment at the moment is that the, the vector math is extremely complex. Some of the vectors are pointing up and some pointing down, as you say. My, my uh, sense is that if we can take a three-year view, that, that you're, you're right, Brian, that policymakers are finally grasping some pretty prickly nettles uh, in, in terms of moving ahead with some of these structural reforms that need to be done. I think they're mindful of the fact that they'll never get a better window of opportunity to do such reforms than when the export sector is finally starting to get a little bit of a tailwind from U.S. and European growth recovery. So they're being mindful of, of timing. 
And uh, the issue, though, is that in the short term, they are going to be, uh, you know, sort of tacking pretty close to the wind in terms of uh, moving ahead with uh, bankruptcies and, and debt workouts and so on. And the market will not like a lot of that news flow. Uh, and at the same time, if they are beginning to try to dial back uh, the level of monetary stimulus that we've all gotten accustomed to, then we probably will see some additional downside risks in terms of uh, GDP growth in the quarters ahead, and the market won't like that either. So we think in terms of short-term risks, but the right steps being taken ultimately to put a much more uh, strategic, longer-term bottom underneath Chinese assets, and, okay, and that, okay. I think, means a bigger turnaround. Listen, you've uh, encountered here a strong adversary, because I'm a vector math wonk, and uh, <laughs> no, just joking, but um, in 20 seconds or so, because pretty words that you just delivered, but what, what sectors or what stocks or what you know, companies are working? The uh, sectors or, or, or uh, types of stocks that we still like in China would include, for example, uh, the automobile manufacturers. Uh, generally speaking, lower price point consumer plays, not the high-end stuff where anti-corruption tends to be a big issue in terms of the marginal demand, but sort of you know, mass market consumer plays in China. And we still think you should be looking more towards new economy type plays or uh, uh, green energy type plays in China, solar, okay. for example. So you got to buy and then just don't look at it for a while. Okay, Michael, uh, I have to say thank you and, um, and good night uh, for the morning uh, because I've got another guest, uh, Mark Michelson, waiting. So talk to you again soon. Michael Kurtz, Chief Asia Equity Strategist at Nomura. I know I'm a bit off my head. This is a Monday morning. You never give me Nothing. 25 minutes after 8 o'clock on a Monday morning, and the TPP has stalled. Agreements uh, expected, perhaps, over this past uh, week didn't materialize. Mark Michelson, senior counselor at APCO Worldwide, joins us for the last five or six minutes. Uh, good morning, Mark. Morning, Brian. Sorry to make you sit through all that. It's nonsense. all right. No, good stuff. Uh, now this is the real part here, right? So, good stuff, yeah. Well, <laughs> now it's disappointing part, I'd say. <laughs> okay, here comes the brains. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the agreement stalled. Um, I have some sources that are telling me that it's mainly pork. Uh, it's the, um, <clears throat> you know, people talked a lot about the ag sector and, and autos. Uh, and uh, But suffice it to say that we're not going to see an agreement anytime soon. Um, when might we? What? You know, they've even taken an off the they keep they kept setting deadlines for completion of the agreement. They've even taken that off the table. Look, this is a self-described gold standard twenty-first century pact. That's how they described it. It's supposed to help dismantle non-tariff barriers and enforce best practices. However, well, ta- well, obliging members to tackle domestic vested interests. Well, there are a lot of missed tackles, I'm afraid, Brian, and and we've seen that again both on the U.S. and Japan side. We talk about U.S. and Japan. It's probably not. Just them, but both on that side. And also there's the overall situation where it doesn't look like the U.S. would even get it through, frankly, politically, even if they were able to come to agreement, which makes it a little dif- difficult to negotiate sometimes. It's very complex, but can you just say that uh, this is kind of tied to the third arrow of Japan's reforms, that really you've got sectors, particularly agriculture, the farm sector, that's not really willing uh, to reform? 
Yeah, that's part of it. And of course, they've, they've been tightly tied to the ruling party, to the Liberal Democratic Party for years. And although there are about five of them and their average age is about 70 or more, uh, at the same time, they, they still wield a strong political interest. And it's symbolic. It's, it's symbolic. So it's important for Japan, just as you can say maybe it was important for China under Zhu Rongji to, to join WTO as a way of, uh, way of getting uh, the economy moving in a different direction. We saw no quid pro quo. The U.S. gave substantially in saying flat out that in terms of security, they would defend Japan's interests right. in the Diaoyu Islands or the Senkakus. And perhaps the U.S. thought that maybe the other side of that was getting some agreement on the TPP. Why did President Obama give that if he didn't get anything in return? Well, I think I think domestically, especially in the political situation now that that reflects what the what what general feeling is in the United States and the U.S. probably sees it in their interest to 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 make this statement, even though in making it, you have to be very careful about not being misinterpreted at at the same time. I think maybe there was a hope that there would be a, a change in, in uh, Japanese attitude. I mean, I think this is reflective of the problem that that Abe is having, and and that's with that with the third arrow. I mean, the restructuring is the most difficult part, and this is just part of the part of the issue. I think. We've been sort of painting this as a big failure, but actually, uh, the U.S. used the word breakthrough to describe. Yeah, that. I know. So, so I mean, I think really what's happening is that you know you're talking about degrees here. You're talking about the level of tariffs and duties, and they're inching closer toward. Uh, the eventual place they want to be, the so-called landing zones, it, it could be a shorter or longer time period. The level of tariffs could be just a little bit tweaked um, up or down. And so might we think that, um, you know, this isn't quite so bad. It'll just take a little more time. I'm not very optimistic, Brian. I, you know, there have been 19 official negotiations since 2010. There have been a lot of more informal meetings. And I just think I just don't think that there's a will on the part of some of the major players, uh, many of them there are, is, to, to, to move forward, even though the need is absolutely there. And as I said, a good part of it at this point is that there's a, there's a general feeling that the U.S. wouldn't be able to get it through politically, certainly not before the, before the midterm elections, uh, and maybe not even after then, because its own party, the Democratic Party, the leaders are, are opposing it. Let me ask you a really dumb question. Uh, is this just the bilaterals we're talking about, U.S.-Japan? And, and what about all the other countries? Have they more or less kind of accepted and agreed to certain terms? Well, you know, we don't know for sure because secret negotiations. There's a, the implication that, yes, that, yes, the, that Japan and the U.S. are the, are the, are the key parties. And I suspect that if they do come to an agreement, they'd be able to, to overcome some of the other problems. But then it's a question of, do you want to come to the agreement for the 12 or do you want to try to get one or two others like Korea and, and a couple of other, the other big players? It's well, not well, going to be China. Big, big yeah. players, China. Yeah. yeah. Well, China eventually. Is China eyeing it? Well, China said about a year ago that they were and they've made some noises. But since then, there hasn't been a much public, uh, public mention. And also, this is playing into China's hands a little bit. They can say quietly, and they have through academics, that is the U.S. really committed to Asia? And is this indicative that they really aren't? So really, shouldn't you turn to us more than the U.S.? All right, Mark. Thanks very much for clarifying things. uh, And we'll talk again soon. Mark Michelson, Senior Counselor at APCO Worldwide. Briefly in markets now, it's red numbers on the screens, uh, at least in a couple of markets. The Nikkei down 135 at 14,293. In Australia, we see 
some slight losses there. Not much to talk about, really. In Seoul, some slight gains. Also, just a smidge, a couple of points higher for the Kospi. And the Australian dollar, 92.8 cents. The UN fixing 6.15. Money for nothing at 8.30. That's it for today. Yeah, we'll leave you with the weather. Mainly cloudy. One or two showers expect in the morning hours. Bright periods coming, and then, you know, the rain comes forward the next few days. Cloudy with rain the next couple of days. Temperatures today ranging around 23 to 27 degrees. Eight thirty one, the news with Samantha Butler. In Taiwan, a standoff continues between police and protesters who are demanding a halt to construction at a fourth nuclear power plant. Tens of thousands of people blockaded a main street in the capital, Taipei, over the weekend. They've pledged to remain until Parliament meets tomorrow to discuss the issue. The government has said it'll seal off the plant's first reactor after safety checks and stop work immediately on a second. Here's our Taipei correspondent, Cindy Sui. The police are still out there trying to use water sprays to get rid of these protesters from this area in central Taipei, which is you know, very much traveled by many people, especially on a Monday morning on their way to work. 